We've been speaking about mental activity, which is what uh, mind is, and uh, we've seen that its uh, defining characteristics are clarity and uh, awareness. When we speak about uh, clarity, we're talking about appearance making, in other words, the giving rise to a mental hologram, which is a way of transforming uh, data into uh, information and its uh, inseparable appearance making and uh, appear- the appearances themselves. So inseparable clarity and appearance that is uh, referred to as the conventional nature of mind or mental activity. And uh, awareness is a uh, cognitive uh, engagement and uh, it is uh, often uh, referred to in terms of uh, inseparable voidness and uh, uh, awareness because uh, on the deepest, and that's the deepest nature of uh, mental activity because it is uh, devoid of a dualistic uh, existence uh, as a separate and established independently of the uh, uh, clarity aware uh, appearance aspect so and devoid of existing as a separate independently established me separate from the uh, mental holograms and so on as the uh, as truly established uh, uh, objects that uh, the me is uh, observing or trying to control etc as a uh, separate separately established entity So if we uh, look at uh, the uh, mind itself, or mind, mind itself referring to the uh, pure aspect of of this, then uh, we see it uh, has uh, inseparable, the uh, two truths about it, the uh, appearance-making or clarity and appearance side, uh, so the conventional nature and the... uh, um, awareness and uh, voidness side as its uh, deepest nature. So we touched on that uh, a little bit uh, yesterday, but uh, we should uh, understand that uh, this whole discussion about uh, mind and mental activity uh, needs to be understood in terms of uh, our uh, understanding of uh, the two truths our understanding of voidness and so on, that uh, mind does not exist in any sort of uh, impossible way that, uh, in which we imagine that, you know, the, uh, we identify me with the uh, awareness side. I'm sort of, you know, over here observing it, <coughs> trying to control it, and objects are over there, this... Uh, uh, mental holograms and so on that arise in the appearance of either uh, sensory data, I mean sensory information, or as uh, whole objects. If we look at it uh, in this way, of course, it's rather complicated. So <laughs> we've been uh, trying to uh, explain it a little bit more uh, in general. We saw that uh, our, uh, when we talk about this uh, 
giving rise to a mental hologram and seeing or thinking, etc., that uh, if we uh, examined it, then we saw that these were in fact non-dual. They're talking about the same thing, just from two different uh, points of view. And what it, it's not as though there's something established here, truly established as mind standing by itself, and then, you know, we're over here and looking at it from two different points of view. It's not like that either when we talk about uh, the two truths of something. We saw that uh, mind then is, uh, so we don't try to make it into some sort of uh, truly established thing. And me is dualistically as something truly established person observing it, kind to control it. We saw that uh, this mental activity is individual, it's subjective, has a physical uh, counterpart or basis, and uh, it has no beginning and uh, no end. We saw that it has uh, uh, many parts that are uh, involved with it, and these parts are uh, multi-part, many of them, they can be organized and understood in, with the analytical scheme of the five aggregates, which is just a, a scheme <laughs> to help us to uh, deal with them, to uh, deconstruct our uh, moment-to-moment experience so that we don't uh, get stuck with it and uh, create problems for ourselves because of our lack of uh, awareness ignorance about uh, how it actually exists and uh, we think that it exists in uh, impossible ways which don't correspond to actuality and it's because of this uh, these habits of grasping for dualistic existence or truly established existence that causes our mental activity to give rise to dualistic appearances together with these uh, holograms mental holograms and causes us to take them to be corresponding to actuality. That's incorrect. So, but we believe it and believing it, it causes all sorts of disturbing emotions and so on to arise to try to defend or assert a separately existing me and uh, that triggers a compulsive Uh, behavior, so karma, and that uh, causes us to uh, act in destructive ways or constructive ways that are still based on uh, ignorance, like uh, compulsively cleaning the house, you know, every few minutes, that type of uh, uh, compulsive behavior, always correcting people when they don't want to be corrected, and so on. And uh, we... uh, experience various types of suffering as a result. So this uh, uh, topic of the five aggregates is uh, very um, relevant and important for us to be able to deconstruct these uh, deceptive appearances and overcome the uh, ignorance and habits of grasping for truly established existence that cause us our problems because after all Buddhism is 
concerned, Buddha was concerned about how to help us to get rid of uh, suffering and its causes completely. So this is a helpful scheme for that. We uh, started to go through the uh, aggregates, these five aggregate factors. We saw that uh, uh, one or more items from each of these um, groupings is found in uh, each moment of our uh, experience, each moment of uh, mental activity. And we started to identify them. We have uh, some form of uh, primary consciousness, some type of primary consciousness. Uh, So it can be visual or uh, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, bodily uh, consciousness of physical sensations, and mental consciousness. We also have uh, foundational awareness or foundational consciousness uh, from which as the uh, source from which uh, uh, because of the various karmic tendencies and the tendencies for all the various mental factors and so on the uh, there is the arising of these uh, mental holograms and uh, we found that uh, the seventh consciousness, uh, is uh, what is uh, always aimed at that uh, foundational uh, uh, consciousness and uh, stimulates it, activate, not act, well, stimulates it, causes it to uh, be able to uh, give rise to this, uh, uh, these uh, mental holograms. So uh, it's always working in conjunction with uh, foundational awareness. In addition, well, and these primary awarenesses, if we speak of the uh, six um, sensory and the mental ones, five sensory and the sixth uh, mental one, uh, what they are focused on is the essential nature of the uh, data and, uh, uh, well, the data. That uh, is it uh, sight, is it a sound, is it a smell, is it a taste, is it a physical sensation, or is it some sort of phenomenon that can only be known (laughs) by mental consciousness, like uh, uh, things in dreams or our imagination or visualizations. Then we have forms of physical phenomenon. Uh, So there are the so-called sensibilia. Uh, These are the sensory objects. They uh, last for only one moment. They're changing uh, all the time. These uh, aggregate factors are... Uh, talking about only the non-static factors that uh, comprise our mental activity, the ones that are changing from moment to moment and all changing at a different rate. And although static phenomenon like categories are not included in the five aggregates, they also are uh, going to be part of our mental activity. The, uh, in addition to the uh, uh, sensibilia, this uh, sense data uh, as forms of physical phenomenon. We also have the uh, uh, tiny photosensitive cells of the eyes, uh, sound sensitive of the ears, and so on, the so-called physical cognitive sensors. And we also have the um, forms of physical phenomenon that can only be known by mental consciousness. These would be what appear to be 
uh, forms, you know, uh, sights, sounds, etc., that would arise in dreams, imagination, visualization, and so on. Then we had uh, distinguishing that uh, in order to deal with uh, this uh, information, we need to uh, be able to uh, uh, distinguish uh, one object from another. We saw that uh, this data that uh, then arises uh, through mental activity as uh, information with a non-conceptual cognition for a sensory or tiny moment and a tiny moment of uh, uh, mental non-conceptual cognition. It's just the hologram of colored shapes or of uh, sounds and so on and then a moment of conceptual cognition in which we have a mentally synthesized whole uh, common sense conventional object that extends over all the sensory data of it and uh, extends over time because the sensibilia are only one sense information of only one sense and uh, only last for one moment So distinguishing is uh, uh, not manifest when uh, we only have the mental holograms of uh, the uh, sensory information, but uh, when we have conceptually uh, an appearance of a whole object, then distinguishing is able to distinguish the defining characteristic, the individual defining characteristic of that uh, uh, object so that it can distinguish it from everything around it and everything that is not it. Uh, together with that uh, uh, whole uh, common sense or conventional object, we would have uh, it's some kind of object, so there's a category of what kind of object it is, and uh, in some cases a name can be designated or a word can be designated on it, although not necessarily. And it's only after that that we get uh, the grasping for truly established existence, that uh, the uh, um, object, the whole object, is truly established over there, and the awareness uh, over here as me, that I am separate from it, and uh, uh, looking at it, this type of uh, thing. So distinguishing is very important for being able to deal with the uh, information once it is uh, mentally synthesized into whole objects and feeling a level of happiness is uh, uh, also a separate aggregate as is distinguishing and that is how we experience uh, this uh, um, occurrence of this uh, mental activity uh, of uh, this uh, arising the hologram and awareness of it and it's how we experience it as a result of our uh, previous karmic uh, previously built up karmic tendencies and so on the experience with some level of happiness or unhappiness somewhere on that spectrum and uh, uh, if we are in very 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 deep uh, meditation meditative absorptions the fourth jhana or the formless uh, absorptions then we would experience the, what we are focusing on uh, with uh, the neutral feeling neither happiness nor unhappiness. And when we speak about the uh, 
uh, mental factor of happiness or unhappiness that can accompany either sensory cognition or mental cognition. So there are these uh, different forms of it or aspects of it. Then we started to speak about the uh, aggregate of other affecting variables, the one that includes everything else that uh, changes from moment to moment that not included in the uh, other four. So this is a very large uh, um, grouping of uh, many, many factors. And uh, we uh, saw that uh, five mental factors are uh, ever-functioning. They are uh, basically the mechanical uh, mental factors that uh, uh, enable us to have mental activity, basically. So uh, we saw that uh, two of these five are uh, constitute separate aggregates, uh, feeling and uh, distinguishing, and the uh, other three were an urge, which uh, uh, affects the mental activity and uh, sets it in uh, motion to uh, go toward uh, something specific and it draws all the uh, other uh, the primary consciousness and uh, mental factors uh, together with it, paying attention or taking to mind, differentiates the uh, objects as uh, this is uh, what we're going to focus on that uh, distinguishing had distinguished from uh, everything else and contacting awareness was uh, uh, the uh, differentiates the uh, object as uh, pleasant or unpleasant and, uh, or neutral so sort of based on our likes and preferences and so on why we would look at something or listen to some music or you know go to visit somebody or do somebody do something because we like to do it so it's a pleasant contacting awareness so that's as much as uh, we have covered it's an awful lot and uh, these are things that uh, in order to actually understand them and digest them, we need to uh, take time, which unfortunately we don't really have time uh, here, but uh, to take time by ourselves to try to recognize these uh, various factors in uh, uh, your daily life. You can start by doing that in uh, meditation, but uh, don't do the meditation with your eyes closed. That uh, is uh, going to make it more difficult to uh, recognize these uh, factors in the beginning. Later on, then it uh, is uh, uh, helpful, but not at the beginning. The beginning, you need to recognize them by sitting quietly and looking all around and uh, uh, trying to understand what's happening when you're seeing, what's happening when you're hearing noise, what's uh, happening when mental wandering comes up, and so on. Try to identify that it is just the arising of a mental hologram. Uh, So there's some form of physical phenomenon that's arising. There's some sort of consciousness that's uh, going on, that's aware of it as a sight or a sound, etc. There is uh, a uh, uh, distinguishing of it from the background. There is uh, some... uh, uh, urge that uh, is drawing you to uh, uh, pay attention to it, choose it as a special uh, object, 
and uh, then uh, when you're paying attention to it, you know the urge has drawn you toward that, having distinguished it, then uh, you are experiencing that as either this is pleasant or unpleasant to look at or to listen to, and there's a very, very subtle level of happiness or unhappiness demonstrated by the fact that if you were happy with it, you would stay looking at it and stay paying attention to it uh, or listening to it. And if you weren't happy about it, you would another urge would come up to draw your attention to something else. So we're talking about what actually happens in uh, each moment. And uh, that is the point of... Uh, uh, this meditative, you know, the process of actually recognizing that. And then, of course, seeing that there's no separate me that's separate from all of this, you know, analyzing and watching it. Once we become familiar with doing that while sitting quietly in uh, our room, uh, then you want to take that into your daily life. And in various situations, especially when you're in some sort of mood and uh, we uh, identify, you know, this mood is so solid and poor me experiencing it and being in this bad mood or feeling blah or, you know, I don't feel like doing anything, this type of mood, then deconstruct it to see, well, it's made up, you know, well, that is one factor. There's only one factor, and there's no reason to identify with it because I'm also seeing things and hearing things, and everything is changing all the time. There's nothing solid about it at all. So in this way, it helps us by deconstructing it, not to identify with uh, the bad mood and not to get stuck in it with uh, incorrect consideration that it is static, permanent, it's never going to change, and therefore, and it's solid, not made of parts, and poor me, it is stuck here. So that is uh, a source of great suffering, and we want to be able to overcome that. And by deconstructing it into the five aggregates and understanding the relation of the self with the five aggregates, it uh, enables us to uh, avoid or get our, get out of uh, being miserable in the situation. So very helpful. Now, we uh, need to look at the other mental factors that are in this uh, aggregate of affecting, other affecting variables. There's a long list. I don't want to go into all of them, uh, in uh, each of them in detail. But uh, we have, uh, let's do something. So we have, uh, in addition the, uh, to the five ever-functioning uh, mental factors, we also have what's called the five ascertaining uh, mental factors. They uh, uh, help the primary consciousness to take its object with certainty. In uh, one, in Vasubandhu's, Explanation. These also occur in every moment. In the Sangha's presentation, which has to do more with karma and so on, then he only defines them in terms of when they're focused on a constructive object. But uh, nevertheless, we can understand it in uh, Vasubandhu's uh, sense a little bit more 
uh, easily, more universally, put it that way. So we first have intention. Intention is the wish that causes the mental activity to take possession of this or that desired phenomenon. So, wish to have it, and it's aimed at a phenomenon that has previously been thought about. It's a very interesting point. Previously have thought about. In order to do something intentionally, you have to have previously thought about it, that uh, object or whatever it is, and in which it has keen interest. The intention, so this also involves interest, the uh, intention may be wanting to meet that object or goal, or not wanting to meet it. Uh, or it could be to want to be parted from this object or this goal, or not to be parted from it, or just to have keen interest in it. So what we're talking about is uh, you wish to meet with uh, this goal, let's say enlightenment, or getting something from the refrigerator or, you know, yelling at somebody. And uh, the wish is to reach that goal and to do something to reach that goal in which you've thought about beforehand. You know, so that eliminates uh, unintentional uh, things that we do. If it's intentional, you've, you've, you've thought about it, to do it and decided to do it. So this is what uh, intention is, and it uh, so it's very fundamental, and it includes interest. It's based on being interested in doing something. If you're not interested in doing or interested uh, in an object, you won't make or a goal, you won't make any effort to achieve it. So that's intention. Then there is a very, very important, I must say, that would be better translated, uh, you know, when you hear volition, volition is really not the urge, that's not karma. Volition would refer a little bit more to what is defined as intention. You want to do it. That's what volition means. Uh, Then we have, uh, the next one is regard, which uh, takes this object to have some level of good qualities on the spectrum from no good qualities to all good qualities. And it may be either accurate or distorted. If you wish to meet something, you regard it as having good qualities, some qualities that you would like to you know, have by having this object. Or to be parted from it, you think that you regard it as having, you know, it's terrible, I don't, it doesn't have any good qualities, I don't want this. So that's regard. Then there is mindfulness, a word that is used in uh, our uh, modern Western times, uh, not with the definition, the defining characteristic of how it's defined in Buddhism. In Buddhism, mindfulness is the mental factor that holds on to some cognized object without losing it as an object of focus. It's equivalent to some type of mental glue. So it is basically, uh, it has to do with memory. We're not talking about remembering or recalling something in the sense of, you know, retrieving it from the databank or whatever. 
but uh, keeping it in mind, recollecting it. Now I'm remembering it. I'm remembering this object. And it's like the mental glue. It keeps me from losing it as my object of focus. That's mindfulness. In the West, mindfulness is used as just being aware of what's going on in the here and now. That's not what uh, this actual uh, word or technical term refers to. So it's the mental glue. And as His Holiness the Dalai Lama explains, this is the most crucial thing in shamatha meditation. If you want to gain you know, perfect concentration and so on, where you put all your effort into is holding on to the, you know, not letting go of the object. That's where you put uh, your effort on. Alertness and all these other things come together with that. But this is the main thing, just hold on. It's like, you know, don't let go. It's like, for instance, uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, uh, physical training. And uh, when you're holding on to a chin-up bar, and you're supposed to do ten chin-ups or, you know, pull-ups or, you know, knee raises or, you know, whatever you do on it, it's this incredible effort to not let go because your hands hurt. You know, don't let go. <laughs> that is mindfulness, you know, on a mental level. Don't let go of the object. It's the mental glue that holds us there. And then concentration, which is basically mentally fixating, is uh, the activity that stays focused and can vary on the object. It can vary from weak to strong. In other words, the uh, concentration holds on to the object and mindfulness prevents you from letting go. That's the difference between the uh, two. So with concentration, you stay fixed. That's why I call it mentally fixating. It could be strong or weak. You know, we're talking about not just, you know, what you have in meditation. We're talking about what you have every moment. So, then the, you know, as you're holding on, the mindfulness is the glue that prevents you from leaving that uh, object. And then discriminating awareness, uh, or sometimes translated as wisdom, but that's such a vague word in all our languages that I prefer not to use it. Uh, discriminating awareness decisively discriminates that something is correct or incorrect, constructive or destructive, and so on. It adds some level of decisiveness to distinguishing an object of cognition. So I distinguish this uh, um, this situation, how something exists, for example. You want to talk about it as wisdom. Or I distinguish it as um, constructive or destructive. You know, it's a defining characteristic, so I focus on it. And then this, this discriminating awareness adds certainty that, to that. And you can either be correct or incorrect. You know, I'm certain that, 
you know, when you are a uh, an older person and you have a uh, someone who cleans your house and you can't remember where you left your keys, then you are absolutely certain that the you know the cleaner stole it. You know, so this type of uh, discriminating awareness is uh, incorrect. So it adds certainty <laughs> to the distinguishing. Okay, so in its uh, so-called wisdom form, it's distinguishing, it's discriminating, you know, between what is uh, true and what's uh, not true, what is uh, um, actual, how things exist, and what is, uh, you know, impossible. It just appears like that, but uh, doesn't correspond to actuality. But it's also very important in, in the ethical sphere, to distinguish between what is constructive and what is destructive in terms of our behavior. Very important in that aspect. So these are the, uh, uh, together with the five ever-functioning mental factors and these five ascertaining mental factors, this, uh, these are what I refer to as the mechanical mental factors. They uh, enable our primary consciousness to take hold of an object, you know, go toward an object, etc., and do it with certainty and stability. You know, concentration, mindfulness gives, gives stability to be able to concentrate on our work, to be able to concentrate on the video that we're watching on YouTube or whatever. All ten of them work together. If we analyze in terms of the combination of a sequence of moments of bare sensory and bare mental cognition and subsequent moments of conceptual cognition where we synthesize into a whole object, then we can understand how all ten of these work simultaneously and harmoniously together. All with these five things shared in common. You know, they're focusing on the same uh, data, same object uh, give rise to, you know, all together to the same mental hologram. They're occurring at the same time. They um, work together in the uh, same slant, and if it's sensory, well, mental as well. It relies on the same cognitive uh, sensor, uh, physical sensors for sense consciousness, and the previous moment of uh, mental cognition, if it is mental consciousness. We can see how these ten work together. Initially, a compelling urge arises to go in the direction of uh, an object. Uh, It's distinguished. It's distinguishing it from other objects that it's not. There's paying attention to it. There's regarding it as having good or bad qualities. The discriminating awareness adds certainty that it's not some other object and that it is constructive or destructive. The intention wishes to obtain that desired object of interest, having thought about it uh, before in order to do something with it or to it. Contacting awareness then experiences uh, it, uh, you know, being in contact with it as pleasant or unpleasant. And so you feel a level of happiness or unhappiness and mentally fixating, you stay focused on it, and mindfulness, you don't let go. 
So that was quite fast. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, you can understand in this way that uh, they work harmoniously together. And it's you know that whole combination that uh, is going on in each moment. And when we can uh, deconstruct that moment into these ten, then uh, if we're having some difficulty, then we can see what is the area that we're having difficulty with, which one of these or which group of these are weak. It could be attention, it could be interest, it could be regard, you know, we don't really see the uh, or understand the good qualities of, uh, of something. I always remember I uh, stayed for several months with a friend who liked to wor- watch on television Formula One car racing, which is just, you know, cars going around in a circle. And I could not for the life of me see why he, you know, what, why he found that interesting. Why in the world would you want to sit there and watch that? on uh, television and uh, then he explained to me what he what was interesting about it you know what he found as a good quality of it which was that the strategies that they use in terms of passing in terms of when they change their wheels when they do this or that and so then regard you know that was what was weak there I didn't see any good qualities to it so if you see, if you can understand, you know, what the good qualities are, then that triggers interest. Then you find it interesting. Then you can pay attention to it. So all these uh, factors, if you understand which one is the one that is deficient in the situation, then you know what to, what to work on, what to strengthen, how to deal with it. Otherwise, you know, I'm just, you know, sitting in my room grumbling, you know, about, uh, you know, why is he watching this thing and it's so loud and, uh, you know, all of that, which is uh, not at all a comfortable state of mind. Not that I sat there and watched it with him either, but (laughs) in any case, I didn't get annoyed (laughs) by it. (laughs) Okay, the other affecting variables... Now there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, We have 11 constructive factors. uh, These don't include all the possible constructive mental factors. I'll just read to you the list. There's believing a fact to be true. That's sometimes called faith or believing, but that really is not a very good uh, uh, translation. Uh, doesn't really comply the meaning. You know, what's constructive is believing a, tr- a fact to be true, not believing nonsense to be true. And uh, then moral self-dignity or having a sense of values. Then there's care for how our actions refrain, reflect on others, and so restraining from acting outrageously destructive. You know, like uh, uh, as Buddhists. Uh, realizing that if we act in, uh, you know, terrible ways, you know, going out and getting drunk and getting in fights and so on, and people know that we're Buddhists, it reflects very badly on Buddhism, you know, on the whole thing. Or if we are very, I mean, this is uh, particularly strong in Asian contexts at the time of the Buddha, that it reflects badly on our family, reflects badly on our caste, you know, in terms of India, and so on. So there is this uh, 
aspect of uh, what is uh, uh, very important constructively is, is to have uh, care for how our actions reflect on others and so we restrain from acting outrageously destructive then there is a detachment which is uh, bored disgust with objects of compulsive desire you know we're not talking about being totally free of attachment and desire it just means that uh, we are I mean the word that's used is bored disgust uh, that uh, you know I'm, it's like how you give up drugs you know marijuana for example you have to be bored with it you know it's always the same always you know just get high and you sit there and you listen to music and you eat and you know whatever and when it's boring when you find it boring then you give it up so detachment is uh, you know uh, this uh, aspect uh, constructive then imperturbability you are not perturbed you are not disturbed not being belligerent in response to negative behavior of others or getting cranky and aggressive when we are suffering you know the term is just not anger or not attachment but uh, you have to look at the commentaries to understand what they're talking about it's not total freedom from them but uh, you don't get you know how when you are Un, you know, suffering, uh, you have a cold or something like that, and then you just get annoyed with people. You know, um, older people also uh, very often will get just annoyed with people because they themselves are confused and so on. Or you get uh, annoyed when uh, um, the bus doesn't come on time or these sort of things. So this is a state in which you don't get annoyed with it. Not that you have completely overcome anger, but uh, just on a provisional level. Then lack of naivety. So being sensitive to the effects of our behavior on others and on ourselves, and and on our own and other situations. Very important for um, what I have developed as sensitivity training, to be sensitive to the effect not naive about the effect of our behavior on ourselves, let's say on our health, you know, that we work too hard, you know, we're stressed all the time, the effect of our behavior on others, that, you know, we're inconsiderate and so on, uh, the, uh, being insensitive to our situation, you know, like insensitive to the fact that we're so tired we should uh, go to bed, or uh, uh, insensitive to the situation of others, that uh, person is busy so don't bother them this type of uh, thing so lack of naivety about uh, about that then there is perseverance a sense of fitness which is self-confidence that we can stay focused and accomplish what we wish so that's very important uh, some sort of self-confidence it's called a sense of fitness uh, a caring attitude we take seriously cause and effect in situations so that brings us to act sensitively and constructively. You know, we don't want to hurt others' feelings and so on. That's caring, you know, it's attitude. And of course, this is the spectrum. But I mean, the constructive one is caring. So how much do you care about others? You know, this type of, uh, of thing, which has to do with really taking them 
seriously, so it's connected with uh, lack of naivety. And then equilibrium, which is uh, our mental acti- having mental activity without flightiness or dullness in a natural state of spontaneity and openness. You know, equilibrium is defined differently in uh, many, many different contexts. But here in the list of mental factors, it uh, um, is defined in this way, that uh, we're not, you know, flighty, which is nervous, you know, you can't uh, focus on anything or dull, you can't do anything like that. But in a state in which we are open to be able to act in a spontaneous, open type of way. So this are the standard list of 11, and uh, there are many more that are not included in the list. Uh, many of them are uh, um, things like uh, love and uh, patience, uh, not patience, love and compassion. So these are included in the meditations for developing love and compassion, you know, like the uh, four immeasurables. This type of thing. There are others which are listed in the uh, paramitas, the perfections that are not listed here, like uh, generosity, patience, uh, um, ethical self-discipline. These are the ones that are left out. And uh, those obviously are also constructive mental factors. Then we have the root disturbing emotions. Uh, Disturbing emotion that's sometimes called afflictions, which... I find a very strange word, but uh, uh, the definition is that uh, when they arise, they cause us to lose peace of mind and self-control. It's a wonderful definition. That's why I call it disturbing. Causes us to lose peace of mind and lose self-control. And it fits. You know, when you're angry, You don't have peace of mind. When you're greedy, you don't have peace of mind, and you lose self-control. So you yell, or you stuff your mouth with more chocolate. Greedy. Take the last piece of cake before anybody else takes it. (laughs) This type of thing. Greedy. Uh, There are uh, six... Root disturbing emotions. Emotion is a difficult word here because some of them would not fit into our category of emotions. There is no word that actually would uh, cover these uh, uh, six very nicely. So sometimes I say disturbing emotions and disturbing attitudes, but even then doesn't work. So we don't have a word, unfortunately. Uh, first one is longing desire. And that has uh, three uh, aspects. Longing, desire for something we don't have. Uh, Attachment, if you have it, you don't want to let go. And greed, that even if you have it, you want more. So these three are there. Longing, desire for what you don't have. Attachment, if you have it, you don't want to let go. And greed, you want even more. You're never satisfied. That's quite disturbing state of mind and based on exaggerating the good qualities of something and ignoring uh, the uh, negative qualities, the shortcomings of something. Then there is uh, anger, which uh, is, you know, to get rid of something, repulsion, exaggerating the negative qualities, 
There is uh, arrogance, and seven types of that, you know, I'm so wonderful, this type of thing. And uh, then there is unawareness or ignorance. That is, uh, uh, unawareness, uh, I think, fits a little bit better to the uh, definition, although everybody uses ignorance. Ignorance, in English at least, implies being stupid. And uh, this is uh, not really, uh, you know, uh, involved with intelligence. But just uh, not knowing. It's defined as bewilderment or dumbfoundedness of not knowing either behavioral cause and effect or the very nature of reality. Bewilderment is a heaviness of mind and body. So we're bewildered, you know, we're heavy, dull, and you just don't understand. That's the secret of not knowing. And uh, there's another, that's how it's defined in Abhidharma. In uh, Dharma Kirti, he defines as knowing it in an incorrect way. So that is uh, ignorance. It's talking about uh, two specific areas, cause and effect. You don't know or you know incorrectly the effect of your behavior. You know, that destructive behavior will cause suffering, constructive will cause uh, happiness. Or you know it incorrectly, you think that uh, by stealing it's going to make me happy. And uh, uh, then. Uh, unawareness of how things exist. So we're not talking here about not knowing somebody's name. You know, not that much. And naivety, Dimuk in uh, Tibetan, is uh, a subcategory of that. And it's directed uh, at persons, whereas ignorance is about uh, persons and objects as well. So it's a subcategory. Then there is indecisive wavering. This is the one that doesn't fit into emotion or attitude. Indecisive wavering about accepting or rejecting what is true. It's defined quite specifically. You know, I mean, we can understand our ordinary thing, you know, of I I don't know somebody's name as also being, you know, uh, disturbing. But uh, it's not really the one that's going to cause us... uh, Continued, uncontrollably recurring samsaric existence, not knowing somebody's name. So it's not, you know, included here in uh, ignorance. So the same thing in terms of indecisive wavering. It's not what should I have for lunch? You know, I can't decide on the menu, uh, or what should I wear today? Which uh, both of which are crippling, potentially crippling. So they are. Certainly disturbing, but uh, again, it's not going to prevent. It's not going to uh, prevent our liberation or enlightenment. This is indecisive wavering about accepting or rejecting what is true. In terms of the teachings on, you know, karma, cause and effect, and the teachings on uh, voidness or, you know, dependent arising, these sort of things. You know, indecisive: is it true? Is it not true? You know, this whole uh, variable. And then the sixth one is a group of five different types of uh, deluded outlooks. 
they are called. And I won't go into the list of all five. That's right. That's rather complicated. But uh, the main one here, which is a difficult one to translate, uh, I really don't uh, remember how others translate it. I call, call it a deluded outlook toward a transitory network. Transitory network is the aggregates. It's a network of five aggregates, and it's transitory. It uh, changes all the uh, time. So this is a jikta. Uh, uh, again, look at the definition. You have to look at the definitions. I can't stress that uh, enough. The problem is whether or not these definitions are translated into our languages, but uh, they're there in the Abhidharma texts and in the uh, 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 auto-commentaries that uh, uh, Vasubandhu and uh, Sangha wrote to their Abhidharma texts. There you find them. Uh, and uh, this is defined, it seeks and latches on to some transitory network from our samsara perpetuating five aggregates. And so it seeks and latches on to some network from our aggregates, you know, so some grouping of our aggregates in that moment and throws out on it an accompanying conceptual framework that tightly holds that it tightly holds on to. Very descriptive the uh, definition. So it doesn't interpolate. Remember, mental factors don't make up anything. So it's from grasping for true existence or grasping for a, you know impossible self or so on. Comes up with some you know conceptual weird idea. You know that uh, you know I exist separately as you know something separate from consciousness, and I'm the most important one in the world, and I should always have my way, and so on. And uh, then this uh, deluded outlook, in a sense, you know, latches on, you know, so it's very strong. It latches on, you know, seeks and latches on to something in our network and throws this conceptual framework that uh, this, uh, these, this grasping uh, manufactured and throws it onto it. That's what it does. And the main one here that we're talking about is me and mine. That's the conceptual framework of me. I'm separate. This is me. And we identify with something in our aggregates like uh, our... Uh, um, you were talking about uh, seeing, someone was talking about seeing your appearance in the mirror and then I'm getting old. That's me, you know, I'm old. Or me is the one that's, you know, in my mind still young, separate from it. Or mine. That, you know, you look, you know, oh, my, you know, that's my, you know, that's my face looks you know, so old, my hair is turned gray. That's mine. And I don't want that. My body, you know, my hair, I've got to make it look, uh, look pretty. So these solid entities, me and mine, me identified with something in the aggregates, or mine identified as something that belongs to me you know this uh, um, 
grasping for an impossible me is uh, you know the me on the um, conceptually um, what is it called um, conceptually derived there's another word that doesn't come to my mind immediately but uh, we have uh, if you've learned from another school, from one of the Indian philosophical schools, that the self is some separate entity that comes into the body and mind and then takes possession of it as its habitat and then uses it and with liberation can exist independently of a body and mind. You know, this is the gross uh, um, uh, self that's to be refuted. So this is the feeling that you get of me and mine. This is my body. You know, I'm going to use my body to get strong. I'm going to use my mind, so it's, it's mine, to uh, figure something out. Or an object, you know, that we are seeing. This is my computer, don't use it. This is this uh, deluded outlook, and it's very, very important to uh, uh, to do that you know it's like it's throwing out this net I explained it of me and mine onto everything in our experience and that's what you have to stop doing yeah it's a matter of fact that sometimes some people uh, regard themselves to be a that some people imagine that they are somebody else like Napoleon or Cleopatra, that type of... Uh, maybe if I'm, maybe you would say I'm a male, but maybe I would think that I'm a female. Or oh, when we have uh, this type of thing that uh, we... Uh, We are identifying me with different components from the aggregates. So you can identify me with the uh, um, gender-specific organs of the body. So that's form of physical phenomenon. So that's you know one part of the aggregates. Or you can identify it with uh, certain... Um, I don't want to use the word feelings, but uh, uh, let's say there are uh, strong tendencies from uh, past lives or whatever to uh, identify with uh, um, uh, gender. Gender, if I remember correctly, is one of the... It's a demanduce, isn't it, in uh, a sangha system? I think it is. So it is uh, one of these imputational uh, factors of gender so, uh, that uh, uh, is separate from the uh, organs themselves. And so it would be identifying with that that is being activated in, uh, you know, um, from tendencies to think about that. In other words, you can locate it within the five aggregates 
you know, there are certain, we'll get to these, uh, these so-called non-congruent affecting variables, things like age, um, and gender, I believe, is one of them, if I recall correctly. There are two uh, common listings of, the, of these. Asanga has a much larger list. Okay. Where are we? So these are the root disturbing emotions. Then we have the auxiliary disturbing emotions. They derive from the three poisonous toxic disturbing emotions. Longing, desire, hostility, or naivety. Remember, naivety was a subcategory of uh, ignorance focused on persons. So all of these are focused on persons. Hostility also is a, uh, it's a different word from uh, anger. Anger is directed at uh, uh, objects as well as persons. Hostility is directed at a person or an animal, something like that. You don't feel hostile toward your lunch. <laughs> For example, pardon my always using examples from food. A good friend of mine always uh, made fun of me that I always use those examples. So, the you know because you have to have uh, these uh, fit into the uh, Hinayana systems, Theravada as well. So needs to be focused on persons, this type of thing. So uh, I won't go into the definitions here, but uh, we have uh, hatred, resentment, uh, concealment of having acted improperly, uh, outrage, envy, miserliness, pretension, hypocrisy, concealing of shortcomings, smugness or conceit, cruelty, no moral sense, self-dignity, so no sense of values, no care for how one's actions reflect on others, foggy-mindedness, flightiness of mind, disbelieving of fact, laziness, not caring, forgetfulness, being unalert, and mental wandering. So there are mental wandering. Flightiness is uh, when you leave some uh, uh, when you leave uh, your object of focus because of desire for something and mental wandering could be about anything so it's a subcategory but flightiness is uh, pointed out as a major distraction in uh, uh, meditation because it uh, um, it's more compelling has more energy than you know meditating and thinking about something that you know annoys you but sexual desire or desire to um, get up or whatever, you know, to scratch your head, these, these type of things, big distractions. Then there are the changeable mental factors. And uh, changeable means that uh, they can be constructive or destructive depending on the ethical status of the cognition they accompany. So these are 
sleepiness. You know, if you're being really uh, angry and you're feeling, you know, a bit uh, sleepy and dull. So it is uh, part of this destructive package. Or if you're uh, sleepy while uh, um, helping somebody, it's part of uh, the constructive package. You know, things have the same slant. You know, uh, so that means that they all fit together uh, nicely. Regret. Regret is probably the one that uh, is most uh, central here. If we, uh, re- you know, you could regret something uh, destructive, so then regret is positive, or you can regret something that uh, is, uh, you know, I regret helping you, I regret giving money to the beggar, uh, this type of thing, and that is uh, destructive. So uh, changeable, depending on uh, what it accompanies. Then there is uh, uh, this pair, gross detection and subtle discernment. Gross detection is investigates roughly, and subtle discernment scrutinizes finely to discern the specific details. Um, this is uh, these are very uh, crucial in vipassana uh, meditation or analytical meditation. So to uh, investigate roughly, so that could accompany. Um, planning how to um, kill somebody, or it could be while planning to how to help somebody. So you try to investigate roughly how to do it, and then scrutinize the fine details of how to do it. So it can accompany something which is positive or something which is negative. So those are the mental factors. Do you have any? I mean, there were a lot of them, a lot of long lists. I don't expect you to remember them, but uh, uh, on my website there's you know the whole presentation and definition of uh, all of them in an article called "Mind and Mental Factors," which is how they're usually referred to. In addition, so are there any questions about that? Them so far. Okay, I think it's fairly straightforward that uh, in each moment, then we're going to have some of these, not all of them, obviously, and we uh, again try to deconstruct in that moment what emotion is. Uh, is there, or what cluster of emotions are there? You know, usually uh, there is, uh, you know, like when you're envious of something, of someone. There's also um, hostility. You know, there are, you know, these things go together. It's a cluster, usually, of uh, these various emotional, mental factors, and uh, we need to, if you can deconstruct it. You know, find all the parts, then you can much more easily um, work on it to uh, overcome it. Whereas if you see it as, you know, just some horrible mood, some solid thing, there's no way of actually dealing with it. Okay. 
That's why His Holiness is always emphasizing that uh, uh, this type of material should be taught in schools to school children. This has nothing to do with uh, uh, religion. This is science. And uh, here, if you uh, put together this type of uh, information that you find in all the various Abhidharmas, including the uh, uh, Bompo Abhidharma, which gives, you know, a little bit uh, other, some other mental factors and so on. Then we have uh, what His Holiness calls for the map of the uh, emotions. You know, some psychologists, uh, Ekman and uh, uh, Tom, what in the world is his name? Goldman have made Goldman. Is it Paul Ekman? Yeah, Paul Ekman and so on. They've made uh, these uh, emotional maps, but uh, those are primarily uh, uh, doing it from a Western point of view of emotions. And if we do it uh, um, from the Abhidharma point of view, uh, we might get a, a, a more expansive map of the uh, emotions, as His Holiness says. And it says in the Indian traditions as well, I'm not as familiar with uh, some of the non-Buddhist Indian traditions, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if they also have listings of the various emotions and uh, mental factors and so on. So all of that would be uh, very helpful for teaching what His Holiness calls emotional hygiene as well as uh, physical hygiene, and that should be taught in the schools. And India is the place to start incorporating that because it's uh, traditional Indian wisdom. So they would be more open to uh, actually teaching it to children. Good. Then we have uh, also included in this uh, aggregate of other affecting variables are a group of uh, variables which are not very easy to understand not very easy to translate their name. I translate it as non-congruent affecting variables. So they're affecting variables that are not congruent with uh, the primary consciousness and mental factors. In other words, they don't share five things in common with them. And they're neither a form of physical phenomenon nor a way of being aware of something. The others are form aggregate is uh, form of physical phenomenon. The others are ways of being aware of something. So these are neither, although when you get into deep debate and philosophical discussions in the various Indian tenet systems, you have some problems with that, but we will put that aside. Uh, so they don't share the same uh, reliance, the cognitive sensor. They don't share the same focal object or give rise to the same mental, to a mental hologram or time or harmonious slant. Uh, they don't share all five. That doesn't mean that they don't share some of them. They do share some of them. Uh, various ones will share some of them, but not all five, not the whole package. So, I mean, like occurring, you know, at the same time, simultaneously, that type of thing. Uh, they do share. Uh, these are imputations it's a very difficult word 
uh, amputations, uh, something like non-stat facts, I think is about the closest that uh, we could uh, come without using jargon like imputation. There are non-static facts about the mental continuum, about mental activity, which is made up of these five ever-changing aggregates of experience. So they are facts about the various items in the five aggregates from point of view of Sautrantika. It's one of the tenant systems. These are objective facts. It's not that somebody has to impute it onto uh, things. They're facts. They're just part of the package. And they change from moment to moment. And they perform functions and they produce effects. So like impermanence, change, aging, motion, tendencies for mental factors to arise, including karmic tendencies and persons. There are many more, but you know, like gender and these sort of things. But uh, impermanence is a fact about something. And it causes things to change. Change is a fact about something. Motion is a fact. It's not a figment of one's imagination. Aging is a fact. Um, A tendency to repeat certain things is a fact about things. It's not a way of being aware of something. It's not a form of physical phenomenon. It doesn't share five things in common, but it is there. Not that you can pinpoint and find it, but it is uh, happening. So all these facts, they apply and in a sense are present with each moment of the mental continuum. That includes the tiny moments of bare non-conceptual sensory cognition of tiny colored shapes and moments of conceptual cognition of mentally synthesized conventionally hold objects. Whether It's a moment of seeing something or a moment, you know, seeing um, data, you know, information, transformed into information, seeing information, and uh, or whether it is uh, uh, conceptually cognizing whole conventional objects. There's still change, there's still motion, there's still uh, these sort of uh, things. So, in each moment, all of the five aggregates, all of them, are impermanent. They're all changing. That's a fact about them. This is this non-congruent affecting variables. That's changing, impermanent. The forms of physical phenomenon, these tiny colored shapes or sound waves and stuff like that, are in motion. We only see one moment at a time. Nevertheless, it is an objective fact that there, that there is motion because there's change. And the uh, primary consciousness and mental factors have varying strengths because of the strength of their potentials and tendencies to repeat. And these are also changing. So these are facts. And there's a person experiencing all of this. That's a fact. 
and the person is aging. It's also a fact. So, if we see the tiny colored shapes that our conceptual cognition synthesizes into an appearance representing a conventional whole body, our own or someone else, it is a fact that this is the body of a person. Think about that for a moment, whether it's our own body or somebody else's body. That's a very important uh, distinction to make. It's quite different from a category which is conceptually synthesized. These are facts. Nobody makes, no, it's not that anybody is, you know, you have the word imputation, it's not that everybody, that anybody imputes it onto it. How you conceptualize it is something else. How you know it is something else. But as a fact, there is impermanence and change and motion. Okay? Think about that for a moment. Remember, we said you can't have mental activity without being the mental activity of someone. You can't have someone without mental activity. And a fact about something is not the same, it's not identical with the thing that it's a fact about. Nor does the fact exist separately from the thing that it's a fact about, is it? There isn't aging separate from something that's aging. And aging isn't the same as what is aging. So it's just one aspect. It's a fact about it. It's an imputation, yeah. is the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just, there are many facts about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are facts and then there are qualities like color and size and these sort of things. That's a different type of thing. Those are relative, you know, large or small, pretty or ugly. Those are relative. Those are qualities. This is, you know, a fact about something is, you know, it's aging. It's falling apart, degenerating, ending. These are all facts. Being born. A whole long list of them. 
and the self person is one of them and it applies to all five aggregates all the components that make up the mental activity and the person isn't the same as the you know what is the basis of the person and it's not totally separate from it either that deluded outlook took it to be that you know me over here and you know the aggregates and mind over there is mine or me as some entity living inside us in my head talking that's me so that's not understanding that person is a non-congruent affecting variable. It's an imputation. It's just a fact. Changing fact. We're changing all the time. Growing, aging, etc. Now, although these facts are valid facts that apply to moments of their sensory cognition and all their aggregate components, they're too subtle for the mind to perceive them instantly in the first moment. They're too subtle. It doesn't mean that they're not facts about, you know, one moment. Remember, all that we perceive is one moment at a time. But in that one moment of a time, it's too fast to be able to perceive, in a sense, in other words, have certainty, ascertain is the fancy word, to have certainty of motion, for example. Think about it. It's only when you have a sequence of various moments that you can know motion right does that mean that in one moment something is not in motion no I mean you have Heisenberg's uncertainty principle you can't know the motion and the location simultaneously so it's exactly the same thing That doesn't mean that motion is just mentally constructed, conceptually constructed. We can only know it as a conceptual construct. But that doesn't invalidate that in each moment, particles and waves and whatever are in motion. Think about that. Aging. We can only know aging over a sequence of, of, of moments, of time. That doesn't mean that we're not aging in each moment. 
We are. Or change. You can only know change if you've seen what was before and what is after. But things are changing all the time. In each moment. So the person is exactly the same thing. We aren't able to perceive a person instantly. It's too subtle. First, see a body or hear a voice on the telephone. And then, you know, the next moment, while hearing the voice, you hear that it's the voice of a person, the sound of a person. It happens very, very quickly, but this is the process. You know, sound waves, and then a hologram of a sound, and then sound and a person speaking. But nevertheless, those sound waves, the person talking. So that's how it works. We can only know a person in this explanation, the Karmakaryu explanation, conceptually synthesized into a person that, you know, extends over all the aggregates. We only are perceiving it with one aggregate, you know, the, the voice, on the, you know, one piece of sensibilia, the voice on the phone. The person extends over all the aggregates and extends over time. So that's conceptually synthesized. But that doesn't mean... So that's only how we know it. At first, one moment, you would have conceptually synthesized the voice and the voice of a person. Voice and person. Not the same, not different. But that doesn't mean that in each moment it's that that's a person talking. It is a person talking. That's a fact. So let us digest that a little bit, and uh, then we have time for some questions about it. See, this is the big misconception that uh, one can have, is that the self is only a conceptual construct, therefore it doesn't exist. Before you take literally Buddhist teachings of no self to mean literally no self. And if there's no self, then as we discussed uh, in one of the previous uh, lectures in, in this uh, series, then you don't have a healthy sense of a self. Without a healthy sense of a self, of conventional self, you don't do anything. Why would you? That's a nihilistic extreme. 
without a sense of a self, you wouldn't a healthy sense of a self, you wouldn't aspire to, and a healthy sense of other people, you wouldn't aspire to help them. You wouldn't aspire to attain liberation or enlightenment. There's nobody. So what? What does it matter? So that's not the meaning. That's a misunderstanding. You can only know the self conceptually. It doesn't mean that you, you know, with certainty. That doesn't mean that there's no self conventionally. Literally. Because the self is a fact about the mental continuum, about mental activity, about the five aggregates. Yeah. Can you say that the self is a uh, it exists but it is constantly changing right, yeah. self is impermanent constantly changing but there is but so there's nothing constant about it but there is a the continuum itself is the self could you put it that way uh is the continuum itself the self? If you... <laughs> um, in Chandrakirti's seven part uh, refutation of the self or truly established existence, that's one of the things that is refuted. It's not that there is a, and you have to understand that, you know, the self is not the same as the aggregates, different from the aggregates on the basis of the aggregates, the aggregates on the basis of it are inside the aggregates, and not the continuum or the, the shape of the aggregates. I think I've gotten all seven, maybe not. But uh, anyways, none of these, because if it were truly existent, established by itself, Dualistically from uh, everything else, you know, else, and there's a continuum that is established, you know, truly by itself. Then you can't say that this solid, you know, me enveloped in plastic is identical with the solid continuum, and you know, enveloped in plastic. So. Uh, each of these incorrect ways are in terms of if things were self-established, if the self were self-established, and um, you know the aggregates or the continuum were self-established, they couldn't be the same thing, and they couldn't be totally different from each other either, because the whole premise that something is self-established is incorrect. Do you have to think of them as self-established? The problem is that uh, our, the habit of grasping for truly established existence makes them appear like that. What is self-established? Self-established is a shorthand way of saying established by a self-establishing nature. 
that whole thing that there is something inside findable that establishes it that makes it a thing so I describe it as enveloping it in plastic wrapping and now it's a thing by itself like a ping pong ball or something like that there is no such thing as a self-establishing nature that is often translated as inherent existence but if you look at the words that's what what it's saying but it appears like that that you know there's something in my head that's me it's talking it's self-established there's something inside it that makes it me not you you know that somehow that defining characteristic has some power by itself to generate the plastic which it doesn't and there it is self-established and now it's 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 you know it came into my body and is inhabiting it and now it's talking and trying to control it and it's out of control or in meditation it's sitting back and watching it false but it appears like that and we believe it and the way that we describe it is that it feels like that so even though it feels like that the response is so what this is nonsense but how to convince yourself of that and not just intellectually that is the trick not easy and requires building up a tremendous amount of positive force that's called merit without that your mind is too closed to understand it you need to open your mind this is why it's Mahayana if you are thinking of benefiting all beings throughout all of space and you can open your mind up to that level you know which you see described in the Mahayana Sutras yeah, the Buddha's teaching and there are 20 million asaras and 30 million gods and you know countless Gandharvas you know they, they describe all the with fantastic numbers of beings that are present the Buddha is teaching too and in our visualizations it says you know imagine all sentient beings around you well, if you can do that to a certain extent that's another form of you know to actually visualize them that's a form that can only be known by the mind obviously we can't see all sentient beings but uh, if you can open your mind to that scope and generate compassion toward all of them and you know do something positive to help others with the dedication that it benefit everybody if you do that enough that opens up your mind if you open up your mind with compassion that opens up the mental blocks that prevent you from understanding voidness or emptiness so it's very clear you know you look at the example of Tsongkhapa founder of the Galuk tradition or Milarepa Tsongkhapa 
was way, way advanced on the paths already. But he was trouble having non-conceptual cognition of voidness. So he had a vision of Manjushri. And Manjushri said, do 35 sets of 100,000 prostrations, one to each of the 35 confession Buddhas, and do, I think it was 10 million mandala offerings. Then you'll be able to, you know, break through your mental blocks. So at that super advanced stage, he went into retreat for a couple of years and did all of that. Or Milarepa, building, you know, all the towers and stuff. Why did Marpa make him do that? Hopefully he didn't do it grumbling, you know, angry at Marpa. But, <laughs> you know, do that to build up this positive force, to open up your mind. So that's very important. You know, don't belittle, you know, Nundro, you know, and all this other stuff. Building a positive force. Very, very important. And not just at the beginning, you know, get it over with type of attitude and get on to the good stuff. You know, as in the example of uh, Tsongkhapa, you know, way, way advanced. You know, he has to go back and do more. So, just some general advice. <laughs> it doesn't have to be prostration. You know, it could be, you know, helping others as a doctor or a teacher or, you know, something. Something that's helping others with the proper dedication. Without the dedication, doing positive things. The default setting is that it just produces so-called, you know, good karma, positive karma. It improves your samsaric ex- uh, existence. That's not what we want. Initially, you want that so that you have the proper circumstances to make more progress. But, you know, we don't just want improved samsara. It has to be dedicated to enlightenment, otherwise it doesn't it doesn't go into that folder in your computer hard drive. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Yeah. <clears throat> Just reflection and continuing this um, with all these mental factors that we have been that you mentioned. And so, how I mean, for deconstruct, we deconstruct ourselves in this way, ourselves. Is this then the way to discover there is no self, or as you just say, well, just open up. Uh, I still can't get it. It's able, what we want to do is not to go to the nihilistic position that there is no self at all, Uh but to understand that this, what we imagine, how it feels that we exist is nonsense. It's not corresponding to reality. 
So when we understand that, what is voidness? Voidness is no such thing. That there's a total absence of something that corresponds to this dualistic appearance. That's what's absent. Voidness is an absence. When you speak about voidness beyond words, beyond concepts, that's referring to the voidness that's understood non-conceptually. But still, it's an absence. Absence of four conceptual ways of conceiving it. So, when we understand that it doesn't exist, that there's, that, um, there's an absence of any findable reference, corresponding, findable thing corresponding to what we imagine. You know, that the term is, is holding it up, you know, from, from out there. No such thing. Then, subsequent to that, then we understand that it is dependent arising, that arises dependently on the basis, the five aggregates, as a fact about them. So you have to understand, you know, these two together. That voidness, you know, doesn't, you know, voidness goes together with dependent arising. So dependent arising can be, uh, of course, understood in many ways. We're not talking about dependent arising as in the 12 links of dependent arising. That's, you know, talking about samsara. But dependent arising in terms of imputation, a basis and a fact about the basis. Neither the same nor totally different. So it doesn't mean no self means literally no self. That is the nihilistic position, and it doesn't mean, you know, that impossible concrete self, you know, wrapped in plastic that we imagine either. So that's the absolutist extreme. So it's Madhyamaka, the middle way, neither of those two, but not neither as a category, as a thing, beyond words, beyond concepts. Neither this nor that could imply, well, then it's something else. So it's not that either. So does that mean it is more going beyond self? It's going beyond our, um, beyond believing in the impossible self. It's going beyond that. And we have very strong mental and emotional blocks preventing us from really, really accepting and understanding that. Understanding and accepting that. Because unfortunately it feels as though we exist as this, you know, Findable thing talking in my head and complaining all the time, commenting. So it's very hard to accept that, even if intellectually we understand it. So 
So that requires applying it in our daily lives and seeing that it functions. It's the test. It comes from Dharma Kirti of uh, uh, does it perform its stated function? And the stated function is that you will not create suffering. So if I believe in this, you know, impossible self, what's the test? Believing like that, I have all sorts of unhappiness and problems and trouble, and I act in compulsive, stupid ways, and I get angry and so on, trying to defend it, trying to make that impossible me secure, which is impossible. Never be secure. We're always insecure. That's how we experience ignorance. Insecurity. I don't know, so I'm insecure. If we understand voidness and dependent arising, what's the test? I don't create problems. Everything works fine. You know, when you have a lot of work to do, you just do it. Not worrying, you know, poor me, I have so much work and I can't do it, and how am I ever going to get it done, and, you know, all of that. You just do it. And what you can get done, you get done. And what you can't get done, you can't get done. Period. Try your best on the basis of a healthy self, healthy me. And it works. It works. You just deal with life. Whatever comes up, just deal with it. So that's why, like in Zen, they say, you know, in the end, it just comes down to ordinary life. Don't make a big deal out of anything. You know, nothing special. You know, samsara, what do you expect? Nothing special. Crap is going to happen. Deal with it. Simple. Not so simple. <laughs> okay, so let's end with the medication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper, act as a cause for all beings to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.